Welcome, and thank you for tuning in to our very first episode of So Below, Healing Trauma with Respect to Our Duality. My name is Kat, and I'll be your host, and I'm so excited to embark on this journey with you. I'd like to emphasize that I'm not an expert. I'm a survivor. In my lifetime, I've been molested, raped, betrayed by those I've trusted. I've lost loved ones. I've been emotionally and physically abused. And this last summer, I almost lost my life at the hands of someone I loved. Someone who promised to protect me. Who listened to me cry about the pains of my past before inflicting more pain on me than all combined. It's this last experience that led me to start this podcast. Well, more accurately, it's what happened afterwards that brought me here. Like all stories that end in abuse, it didn't start that way. He was my best friend. We talked about everything. We grew together. We encouraged each other. We healed. I knew more about trucking than anybody who's never driven a truck should know, but he was clean and sober then. And I can honestly say that I really got the best of him. Then COVID hit, and just like everybody else in the world, he lost his job. Nothing was open, so any side gig he had going for him wasn't going to happen anymore. Soon the unemployment checks dried up. His insecurities start getting the better of him because now his manhood's threatened because he's not taking care of the money. He's no longer bringing in as much as he was before. He can't provide the same way. So he starts getting more and more insecure. And no matter how hard I try to work with him, Nothing I do makes it better. So he starts getting more jealous and insecure. And of course, I love this man. So I try to give them benefit of the doubt as much as possible. And I try to say, hey, it's just the hard time he's having. It's not really how he feels. This is just a really hard time. And we just got to get through this rough patch. But the more I try to overlook his faults, he spends all that time picking away at mine. And nothing I do is ever enough. And every time I let him step over a boundary for the sake of keeping the peace, it was easier and easier for him to drag me into a shit show. Then he lost the custody battle that we'd been fighting for two years. And then his battle with addiction. I didn't know before we started dating or at any point in our relationship did I know that he had had a serious problem with cocaine in his past. When he was younger, he'd worked in the entertainment industry, you know, nightclubs and events, and he was always very open about the fact that he'd used it recreationally. But it was always referenced in the sense of a youthful party phase, never something that he had had an issue with, which I came to find out later that it was a pretty big issue. And honestly, he'd never given me any reason not to trust him up to this point. So when he had trouble landing or keeping a real job, he started picking up jobs in the entertainment industry again. And when he would occasionally use it, I, you know, understood he was trying to keep awake and it was harder, especially now that he was older, to stay awake. And, you know, I'd even tried it a couple times with him, but it just, it wasn't really my thing. So, you know, I, I tried to play it off of, as it wasn't this big deal and I never saw the extent of it. You know, I would see it now and then, but it wasn't something that was thrown in my face all the time that I knew happened all the time on a daily basis which, you know, I came to find out later that it was happening all the time, which you don't know unless you've understood addiction. And I've never really been around anyone with addiction before. So I didn't see the signs and I didn't know what to look for. And all the little things that happened, they just came at me out of the blue because I, you know, again, I never knew what to look for. The first time things got physical, I walked away with a broken nose and a bruised chin. He had me pinned on the floor and I hit him in the head with a brush, which seemed to wake him up, and he saw the blood flowing from my nose. 
He cried and apologized, but he still found a way to flip it back on me, you know, like a real man. It broke. I was fragmented. I had no idea how to reconcile the man that I had loved and shared so much with, and the evil act that he'd committed. So I stayed. For the next four months, he was dedicated to breaking my spirit to hide his shame. Nothing I did was ever enough. I was constantly being accused, constant jealousy, constantly being watched. My every move had to be justified. I was thrown down the stairs, kicked in the face, and my tooth knocked back. I'll never forget hiding in the tub while he said over and over again, I've never closed fist hit a girl before. While I rocked back and forth, my face buried in my hands which was just another short-lived realization that he'd crossed an, yet another line in his own fucked-up moral code that had allowed him to downplay the deplorable shit that he'd done before. I don't want to go into extreme detail because that isn't the point of this podcast. But in order to understand what happened afterward, it is a necessary part of the story. So after weeks of dealing with this manipulative, controlling bullshit and countless nights where he never let me fucking sleep which just made me feel like I was losing my mind. And if anyone's had children or ever gone to college or gone through a time where they worked several jobs and never had a time where they couldn't sleep, if you ever feel like you're going crazy, it's when you're not getting enough sleep. And because he wasn't sleeping and I was working full time, I never got to sleep and I was feeling like I was going nuts. So after months of being treated like garbage and demeaned and belittled, I'd finally had enough. So one morning he wakes me up after a night out partying and I'm sure he had just fucked another girl because I found out later that he was cheating on me the whole time. But of course, you know, anytime you get accused of cheating constantly, it's probably because the other person's cheating on you like 10 times out of 10. And I don't want to say it's always, but it's always. So yeah, you know, he was probably out cheating on me. It's early in the morning and he comes walking into the room and starts throwing things and throwing a tantrum. And he wakes me up and he's telling me that he knows I'm cheating on him and that I had been up all night talking to somebody, even though, you know, I had literally been sleeping because I hadn't slept in weeks and it felt good to finally get some sleep. And while I'm looking at him, just ranting and raving and accusing me of cheating yet again, when literally I never did anything. I never went anywhere. I never talked to anybody. I had no friends anymore because he had alienated me from all my friends. And I'm sitting there looking at him, screaming at me. And I'm just like, you know what, dude, this isn't even worth it anymore. I'm fucking done. I'm just, I'm done. And I wasn't angry. I wasn't mad. I was just done. So I started packing my stuff and cleaning and making very slow and deliberate moves. And every time he started saying anything, I was like, dude, it's not even worth it. I'm done. I'm, I'm moving out. I'm, I'm getting out of here. This isn't done. This isn't happening anymore. I'm done. And so for hours, I'm just walking around the house, cleaning, I'm packing things up and he's just like bouncing around me, going back and forth between angry and apologetic and then back to accusatory. And then he's back to apologetic again. And then he's pissed off again. And then he's, you know, Mr. Nice Guy. And he's like, oh, but I love you so much. And we got to work this out. And what am I going to do? And then all of a sudden he starts thinking about the bills and realizing that he can't pay anything without me because he, I've been paying for everything at this point. And so he's losing his mind. And he's like, well, what are we going to do? And so I'm, I'm cleaning and I go up into my kid's room and finally 
um, he's, you know, up in a rage again. And I think at this point he'd gone back down and taken another hit off of, you know, his little eight ball that he had going downstairs. And he comes back upstairs in a rage. And while I'm cleaning my kids' room, and he grabs my daughter's crystal collection and he throws it across the room and it slams against the wall. And finally, that's it. I react. And I was like, you don't get to throw my kids shit just because you're in a bad mood. Just because you're not getting your way, you don't get to destroy their things. And he starts trying to claim that he paid for most of it. And I said, that is neither here nor there. It's not the point. You don't get to trash their things. So I push him out of the room. And keep in mind, this man is six foot five. He's 260 pounds. You know, he's got a good 70 pounds on me. So I push him out of the room and I've got my back to him trying to hold him out. And, you know, I tell him, you don't get to touch their stuff. And I'm holding him back from the room. And he's, I'm sure he's thrilled that I finally reacted. So he pulls his phone out and he gets it ready. And he puts his hand around my throat, knowing that that's one of my triggers, that I can't handle having a hand around my throat. So he puts his hand around my throat and he squeezes. So I elbow him and I turn around and I push him back and I punch him as hard as I can in the ribs while I shove past him because he had blocked my way out of the room, squeezed my throat. And of course, all you're going to see on the, the video is, you know, me punching him and hitting him while walking past. But I go downstairs and I calm myself and I start getting ready to, you know, to, to deal with whatever's next. And I'm like, I can't react. I can't do anything. I got to stay calm. And I'm, you know, folding towels and I'm putting things away and I'm separating his stuff from my stuff. And he comes downstairs and he's like, I can't believe you're doing this. And then you got to stop. And he's like, oh my gosh, pay attention to me. So he grabs this cup of water off the table and he splashes me in the face. So I pick up the other cup and I splash it in his face. And that's the moment my life changed forever. I saw the moment that that man let his demons take the wheel and he no longer existed anymore. The man I loved, he was gone. And he came flying across the table so fast that he shattered the TV behind me while he bodily threw me headfirst into a metal fish tank stand, almost breaking my arm. And I just remember my head ringing. And I couldn't handle thinking about what happened, so, but I, I didn't want him near me. And as soon as he tried to run over to me to, to make things better, I, I ran. I fled out the front door, and I, I ran to the hospital because my arm felt broken. And I remember walking the three miles to the hospital, and it was the middle of July, and it was so hot that by the time I got there, my shirt was soaked in sweat. But I'd also had time to process. Shock had set in, PTSD, fear empathy for him and what would happen if I told everything came crashing down on me. So when I get to the hospital, I tell them I trip over a blanket. And they asked me a lot of questions because I'd been in and out of the ER quite a bit recently. But for some reason, I just I couldn't betray him. And they give me a large dose of Valium and a big giant painkiller. And by the time he gets there and realizes that I hadn't ratted him out, they send me home with him, my drug-induced brain. And I'll never forget making eye contact with the doctor who looked down when I didn't say anything. And I could tell that he was concerned and that he knew that I was going home to something. But again, I didn't say anything. And I went home with him. When I climbed in the Jeep, I could tell he was jacked up. The rage radiating off of him just filled me with 
an equal amount, if not more, because the audacity of this man to be angry at me after what he had done. And he looks at me and he says, who the fuck did you call? And that's literally his only concern. Who did you call and what did you tell them? And he starts questioning me as soon as we're in the car. No apologies, no trying to make it right this time. He just starts driving aggressively, angrily, faster and faster. So, you know, I can't pull on the door handle and try to get out of the car. Not that I could anyways, because my right arm was in a sling. But we get to the house and that afternoon and night were the first taste of the terrors of hell that I would experience. I told him I no longer owed him my loyalty or my silence. And he spent the next few hours playing hopscotch with his personalities, going back and forth between apologetic and angry. Again, I want to avoid extreme detail, but he forced me to do lines of cocaine. He dragged me around the house by my injured arm. He threatened me, belittled me, said the meanest things he could think of, and hit every trigger he possibly knew that he could. And in the end, he forced me to take a handful of pills to make it look like I was the one who did it to myself. He called my brother to cover his tracks, but he refused to give a physical address for the ambulance. So my brother and his wife drove to me and took me to the hospital. This is the only reason I'm alive today. They saved my life. Now this is the relevant part. The reason I started this podcast to begin with. I died. I spent the next three days in the ICU, traveling between this world and the next. And what I saw changed the way I see everything. It changed me. But it was more than just a change. It was an introduction to the fundamental ideas that build the foundation necessary to reach the fullness of our potentials. Now, I have to be careful with using a phrase like the fullness of our potential, because the problem is most of us think of perfection when we think fullness of our potential. There's this epic weight on it, this huge heaviness that we feel like it's this faraway destination, but it's not. The fullness of our potential is something that we have at all times. We have the ability to reach and access at all times. In terms of healing, this might look like setting a boundary or learning your triggers and learning how to react to them properly instead of expecting the world to tiptoe around you. For example, if you were a kid and walking down the street and passing an Indian restaurant and some dude in a trench coat comes and flashes you, and every time you smell curry, you start thinking of some dude hanging brain, you know, you have to realize that you can't expect the rest of the world to stop making curry. There's 7 billion people in this world and a lot of people like curry. You have to understand that, you know, maybe curry's not the trigger. Maybe curry's not the problem. Maybe the problem is, you know, happy slappy in a trench coat. Life is full of these external stimuli. So when something traumatic happens, like seeing Bolero Bob's wrinkly baby bird, our nervous system becomes stuck in this moment. It remembers everything possible so that it can avoid having something like this happen again. It remembers every smell, every taste, every touch, every moment about it possible. So we never know what's going to trigger us. In order to understand and maintain control of our triggers, we have to first understand ourselves at a very intimate level. We have to be willing to peel back the layers and look at the parts that aren't so pretty. 
while remembering to treat yourself with the same kindness and respect that you would to the most important person in your life. Because newsflash, you are the most important person in your life. You are with one person every single day, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. That person is you. You deserve to trust yourself. You deserve to respect yourself. And in order to do that, you have to be extremely aware of who you are. The thing is, you have to be willing to put in the work. And hopefully that's why you're here. You're done being exhausted from living your life in fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. You're done pouring from an empty cup. You're done just surviving and you're ready to thrive. And I guess that's what I'm trying to accomplish here by encouraging you to look inward for healing. Peace through becoming a passive participant in our lives where things happen around us that we have to deal with. A spiritual being having a human experience instead of an overwhelmed human drowning in the things happening to them. I want to gather a community of people focused on healing so that we can build a barrier of protection for the next generation. We can break generational curses and teach them how to have an emotional maturity that we could have only dreamed of. But in order for me to explain what I learned on the other side of the veil in a way that'll make sense to you, you'll have to first become used to the idea of unlearning things, understanding that healing is as much a process of deconstruction as it is rebuilding. It's not easy, and it's often a very lonely process. It's crazy that the closer we get to living our truth, the more our real tends to reflect people's fake back onto them. That's the most beautifully devastating part about the nature of healing is its ability to shine the light on the snakes in your grass. It's not a process that for the faint of heart, but we already know you're not. You're a survivor. Now it's just a matter of getting started, and the first step is quite simple. It's setting realistic expectations for yourself, realizing that each person is different, and that the healing process will be as unique to each person as a fingerprint. We can't place time frames on it because each person experiences trauma differently, even if they experience the same thing because each person's perception of an experience is colored by the experiences of our past and the level of our emotional maturity, not to mention a lifetime of hypocritical messages about the definition of good and bad. We're creatures of duality, beings of dark and light, and we rarely encounter true moments of the extremes of divine miracle or true evil. Most of our lives take place in shades of gray, but it's these extreme moments that shape our perception of the gray areas. We spend our entire lives compartmentalizing and categorizing things with labels of good and bad when these concepts are like art and beauty, and they're subjective and in the eye of the beholder. We spend so much time worrying about other people's perceptions that we forget that we are the beholder of our own stories. So it's in this deconstruction process that we have the opportunity to remove the labels of good and bad based on our preconceived notions and based on what other people have told us, and we can start to look at it with new eyes trusting our own intuition. It's easy to say that dark equals bad, and if you do bad things, you're going to go to hell. But again, bad is one of those things that's subjective. From the time that we're little, we have different conflicting messages of it. We're told not to lie, but then our parents lie to us about Santa Claus. We turn around and lie to our kids about Santa Claus. We tell them stories about the boy who cried wolf and tell them that if they lie, they're going to be in trouble and they're going to go to the bad place. It's also easy to say that light equals good, and if you do good things, you're going to get into heaven. But it doesn't work like that, and I can tell you that from experience. 
You can be the villain in one person's story and the hero in another person's. Both things can be true at the same time. But saying light is better than dark is like saying day is better than night because it's easier to see. But if you can look at the night sky and see the beauty only visible when the world has gone dark, then you owe yourself the same respect of looking at yourself with the same eyes of wonder and a desire for understanding as the astronomers of old looked at the sky. But with the true integrity of the posts of a scientist, a spiritual leader, and a journalist, united with the intent of exposing truths and taking accountability. It's only through seeking truth and embracing our light and dark equally with the objective of understanding that we can begin to heal enough to see the world with true clarity. The kind of clarity you can only get from looking at things from another perspective. Using the example of the way that we label things as good and bad, there are a few things that we can do to start reassessing the way that we put things in those categories. The philosopher Hermes said, All that ascends from on high is generative, and all that issues from below is nurturative. What this means for us is that creativity and inspiration are the gifts that we receive from above, while introspection, healing, and growth are the gifts that we receive from below. We can apply this concept on a practical level on a day-to-day basis in the way that we label our days. We're not having a bad day. We're having a nurturative day. It's right there in the title what we need. We need to nurture ourselves. And nurture isn't always bubble baths and self-care. Nurture is dirty. Is looking at yourself and taking accountability, realizing where you're the toxic person. It's realizing where you're wrong and deciding to make a change. It's deciding your peaceful energy is more important than maintaining one-sided relationships that are no longer serving your growth and making the hard choice to cut people off. It's about setting firm boundaries. It's about self-respect. It's about being kind to yourself. It's about talking to your inner child the way you needed to be talked to as a child, the way you needed to be talked to when you were going through your trauma. You need to be the person that you needed most in your darkest hour. And in our great days, when sun is shining and you're full of piss and vinegar, if we relabel that day a generative day, it serves as a reminder to not fall into the perils of complacency because it's the inspiration, creativity, and joy that we receive on these days that breathe life back into us. And we can use these life-giving energies to bolster us, to build our foundation on and use as a shield on our nurturative days, which uses our cyclical nature to our advantage. We didn't choose our trauma. It was inflicted on us. Hurt people hurt people in a desperate attempt to deflect their own inner torment onto someone else because misery loves company. But what our abusers and tormentors don't realize is that in their pathetic attempt to escape their own purgatory by dragging us down with them, they gave us a superpower. Because as far down as they dragged us to hell... That's as high as we have the potential to reach once we remove the weight of our experience. Consider a seed. In order for it to grow, it has to be buried in a cool, dark place. And if nurtured, it can break through the protected shell and reach the fullness of its potential. I'll spend the next few episodes discussing this in further detail. But the first element you need is light. 
This is speaking our truth and becoming the most authentic version of ourselves possible. Being true to your healing process is vital. Words are powerful, which is why it's called spelling. Speaking the words is like turning on the lights. The secret makes it scarier. The next element for your seed of healing is water. This is the work that you have to do. This will take a couple of episodes to cover. But this is where we begin to delve deeper into the human condition as we learn to reassess the way we look at our feelings. It's my hope that in sharing my experience, I'll be able to help others meet their demons and understand them, embracing them as friends and protectors, that they can let their walls down and replace them with strong boundaries and self-respect, to be able to remove the armor of pain and revel in the strength and power of softness and vulnerability. So if you're out there in the trenches, treading water and barely afloat, I want you to know that you aren't alone. I want you to know that you are worth healing and you deserve to be treated with kindness and respect, especially from yourself. It's like Maya Angelou said, when you know better, you do better. And God damn it, you deserve to know better. <laughs>